We're starting a series this week, uh, Citizens of Hope, and this is actually, this is like the second week. We're, we're a little out of order because this goes well with communion, so we kind of rearrange some things. Um, <clears throat> but um, I'm, I'm going to go back and touch on a little bit out of the first week because it, it doesn't, you need, you need to know the first, you need to have the setting where it doesn't make sense. So anyway, so uh, to, to reach back in uh, into the, uh, the setting of this whole series, uh, remembering that uh, during the time of the exile, uh, the people of Israel were taken out of their home uh, and, and exiled into Babylon. And, and in that day and time, they understood that God dwelt in the temple in Jerusalem. So, so they're separated from God, I mean, physically by distance, and they can't worship God because they can't go to the temple. And out of that, there's a psalm that is written, uh, a psalm of lament around that. Uh, that's very famous, uh, you know, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and there we wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our harps, for there our captors ask us for songs and our tormentors ask for mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How could we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? And how could we lift up our voices and sing when we're separated from God and and alienated from God and and in distance from God? And into that place of, uh, of being alone and feeling forgotten, uh, God speaks a word to them through his prophet Isaiah. Now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. Now God speaks this word of hope to them that even in that place and that time, they're not forgotten. Um, we sometimes forget uh, that within the Christian faith, that, you know, for the first several hundred years of the Christian faith, uh, we, we did not live in a supportive culture. We lived in a culture that opposed the faith. And, uh, and so it was, it was difficult. I mean, people uh, lost jobs. People lost their economic well-being. Uh, people were imprisoned. Uh, people were executed for their faith. And, and in the midst of that time, they had to find ways to hold on to hope. Uh, we don't often sense that here. Uh, and, and understand that uh, in the same kind of ways, except once in a while uh, we run into that. We encounter that a little bit when, uh, when uh, a church is, uh, one of these, uh, the churches in Louisiana were set on fire. Um, we had the recent bombing in Sri Lanka. One of my neighbors is from Sri Lanka. And, uh, and I went to, to pray with them after that and just seeing the, the look on their face of, of fear and grief um, none of their direct family was impacted, but people they knew uh, had friends who were impacted. And, and so that, that reality that we sometimes forget about, which is, you know, in the midst of this world, we can be in those places. Um, that was every day for the early church. And so into that, God speaks a word of hope that even in that time and even in that place, I've not forgotten you. You're mine. And I've called you by name. And one of the places that they found that hope most clearly was when they came to the table. And we're going to talk about that this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we confess to you that there are times in the midst of this world that um, we feel overwhelmed, uh, that we feel lost, uh, that we feel we're losing hope or we are in despair. And we thank you that in the midst of that, uh, you speak into our lives and remind us that you know us and that you have called us by name. Um, So let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. 
next week I'm going to speak a little more about that. But if you want to kind of get ready for that, you know, the, the, as we go to the next week, this, uh, this, the words out of this psalm, uh, go look up online, By the Rivers of Babylon by Jimmy Cliff. You'll, trust me, you'll enjoy it. Uh, so one of the early places that, that the church found hope was around the table, and, and one of the earliest uh, recordings of that, one of the earliest versions of that comes out of Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. Uh, and very early in the history of the church, he writes that I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Just tuck that last line back in the back of your head. It'll come back to you in a minute. So, you know, when we gather around the table, we can come for, for different reasons. You know, sometimes we gather around the table to have a good meal. And, and there's a sense in which uh, we talk about, you know, Epicurean uh, enjoyment of a meal, of a nice meal, which is kind of interesting because Epicurus was a, a philosopher and actually he, he stressed living a very simple life. And so it was important for the food to be pure, but not really fancy. And we've kind of taken that in a different direction. We talk about, you know, being sensitive and discriminating in taste, especially in food and wine, you know, like wine lovers quarterly and all that kind of stuff, you know, the epicure and the fine meal, you know, instead of going to Whataburger, we're going to go to Fleming's, right? You got, I mean, you know, I mean, I'm a, we're not, and we're not, instead of going to Sea Island, we're going to go to Papa Do's. Y'all like Papa Do's, just admit it, you know, I mean, and this is, this is, it's, it's fine food and it's, it's good food and all, and there's nothing wrong with that. You know, I mean, really, you know, if, if you're taking your future spouse out on the first date, and you've gone to Whataburger, uh, I don't know, uh, but uh, maybe, maybe not. But, but there's that sense, and in the early church when they gathered, uh, remember they're gathering in homes, uh, and a lot of times they're gathering around the table, and so, you know, they did try to do a nice meal for people, but that wasn't the, the main reason for the meal. Uh, the main reason for the meal is something called akoristos, or uh, the Eucharist, as we say it. Uh, it comes from the Greek word uh, alkaristos, which means good gifts. Uh, the word karistos, uh, uh, charism, uh, is the word uh, that's used in the scripture to talk about the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives us. It's the, the root of uh, charismatic. Uh, and so it's this understanding, uh, and al, incidentally, al, eu in Greek is always the prefix, it means good. Uh, and so this is, you know, it's, it's the good gift that's given to us. Uh, we have a great Thanksgiving uh, that we read every time when we do uh, the communion meal, where we recite all the good gifts that God has given to us through history. And so it's a time of remembering that. And when the early church gathered around the table, first they would have their, their nice meal, the Epicurean meal, but then they would move into the Eucharist, the time of, of and uh, remembering in that meal the, all the good things that God had done for them in Christ and finding thanksgiving for that. And in the middle of that great thanksgiving, there's a particular phrase that we read through, uh, and we don't do it every time we do the, the thanksgiving here, but when we do it this morning, we will. It's called a memorial acclamation. And most of the time when we've gone through that, you probably haven't paid a whole lot of attention to it. Uh, Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. And we, we read that just kind of as a, I don't know, recitation. It's, yeah, okay, that's true. Uh, and, and I don't know how much you actually think into that. 
so I want to go into that a little more deeply this morning. There's, there's a lot of power uh, in that acclamation. Uh, and, and I don't necessarily want you to, you know, be out here doing a bunch of fancy theology with it. I'm not going to get into atonement theory and all that. Um, that, that goes with this and certainly is part of it. And the understanding that, that in Christ's death on the cross, our sins die with him. And in his resurrection, we're raised into new life. So all that's important. But, but there's something um, more personal and more profound uh, in that acclamation than what I think we sometimes acknowledge. Uh, the first part of that, Christ has died. Uh, you know, out of Mark's gospel at three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The first words of tw- Psalm 22. Um, and, and the language there actually is Aramaic, not Greek, when he's speaking. Uh, and then Jesus gave a loud cry and breathed his last. The, the crucifixion of Christ, which uh, for a while, you know, we had all these people making theories about, you know, well, he didn't really die and all that. Well, you know, most of that's pretty well gone away. You know, everybody's pretty well accepted. Yeah, this is, this is really what happened, uh, that Christ offered himself up and he died out of love that Christ dies for us on the cross. And, and although we understand that in terms of the atonement, I, I, I want you to hear that in terms of that, that God was willing in love uh, to suffer through this with us. Uh, in 2003, uh, I lost my sister. Uh, my sister died. And uh, it, she went in the hospital on a Monday and she died on a Sunday. Uh, I'd gone to Memphis, Tennessee. We were there with the church staff at an Albany Institute event. And, uh, and my mother called me uh, to let me know what was going on. And then I called Tuesday night. Uh, I called back down and I talked to my sister on the phone that night. And uh, we had a good conversation and, and I, I told her I loved her. And it was, it was a good last conversation for us to have had. Um, on Wednesday, my mother called me and let me know that she had taken a, a major turn for the worse and asked me to come home. And so I, uh, I hopped a flight out of Memphis and flew back down here to Austin, uh, spent the night here and repacked and everything and drove to Houston. Uh, by the time I got to Houston, they'd moved her into the ICU at Methodist Hospital and uh, she uh, was unconscious uh, at that point and never regained consciousness after that. Uh, we would not know for months uh, what really was going on. Uh, so we were in that time in that space. We didn't know what was happening. We had no explanation. Um, my, my brother-in-law and my mother and her husband and my uh, nephews and niece were, were in the waiting room and, and I was spending a lot of time back in the ICU uh, room itself with my sister. Uh, as she was uh, just slowly deteriorating over, well, not real slowly, over those few days. And by the time we got to Sunday morning, uh, I knew enough uh, from being in hospitals over the years uh, to know that uh, she was not going to survive. And I had breakfast with my stepfather that morning and and told him that. And uh, um, the doctors were coming and saying, "We, we need you to talk to your family. Uh, we, we need permission to stop treatment. You know, we, we can't put, we, we're putting blood in her and she's losing it faster than we can get it in her. And we keep having to restart her heart. And, and you know, it's, it's not going to get better. And we need permission to, to stop. Um, and um, so I, I was sitting in there thinking, uh, you know, how am I going to have this conversation? Um, you know, and, and really feeling very much uh, out at sea with it because we didn't know what was going on. We didn't know what was happening. And, and now you're asking me to go and, and have that conversation with my family. And in the midst of that, her friend uh, and her pastor and her boss for 20 years, uh, Richard Burnham, showed up at the hospital and uh, he came back to the room with me. And I was telling him this. I'm going, I, I just, I, I don't know what to say. I mean, I don't know how to do this. I mean, I don't know what's going on. I don't know how, to, how, how do I have this conversation? I, I don't understand. And Richard said, you know, Tom, he said, um, God knows what it's like to die. 
And, uh, and, and so, you know, God's with Judy in her dying. He said, and you know, God also knows what it's like to watch his child die. And so God is with your family in this. And, and although I've known that, you know, all my life, that's, I mean, that's always been in my head. At that moment, it became real in a very different way. Uh, that, you know, even in that time and in that place, God knew what we were going through. Not, you know, didn't know about it. God knew it. God had experienced it. And God was with us in that. Uh, and there was a tremendous power in that that allowed me to, to have the conversation I needed to have. Um, you know, this, this statement isn't just a theoretical, it's a reminder that even when we're in those places in life that are so difficult and so hard, you know, God knows us and God claims us and God calls us by name, even there. But the other part of that is it, it doesn't end there. God doesn't leave us in that place because the death of Christ, you know, Christ has died, is followed with the resurrection. You know, Christ has risen. Um, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her, the first witness to the resurrection. Uh, and Paul writes in Romans, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through his spirit that dwells in you. This, this word of hope that comes that, you know, that the death is, is, is there, but, but there's also the resurrection. Life is, is, is better than that. Um, five days after my sister's death, we were doing her service, and uh, Richard was uh, do, conducting the service. My brother-in-law and I were both speaking. I was doing the eulogy at the service, and I told Cindy ahead of time, my wife Cindy ahead of time, I said, you know, if I have to go sit in the family room before this, uh, in the middle of that, I'm going to be an emotional train wreck. I won't be able to get through this. So I, I need you to run interference for me, you know, with the family this morning so that I can keep my act together and get through this. And Cindy did an amazing job of, of shepherding me uh, through that that morning and, and keeping, uh, you know, some distance with me and my family so I could be composed. And before the service, we were behind the uh, sanctuary in the hallway back there, and uh, uh, Cindy prayed over me and um, just prayed God's protection and peace over me as I was going to be speaking in the middle of that service. And, and as she was praying, um, my memory went back to 30 years before that when my father had passed away. And I could remember very uh, distinctly uh, a conversation I had with God at that time where I was really angry with God. Uh, my father, this was pre-hospice time, and uh, my father's last two months were pretty much a living hell. Uh, he was in tremendous pain and misery through that time. And, uh, and I can remember very clearly, you know, having it out with God about that, saying, okay, now listen, this is one of the most gracious people I've ever known, one of the most gentle men I've ever met. He never caused anybody harm. He never tried to hurt anybody's feelings. And yet, you know, he, he, he died this horrible death. I said, how could you let that happen? I mean, what is the matter with you? And, and incidentally, it's okay to have those conversations with God. He's, God can handle it, okay? It's all right. Uh, so I, I was just unloading on God. And, and, and in the middle of that, um, you know, I, I made a statement, something to the effect of, you know, how is it possible that someone who was such a good person, uh, that the story of his life could end so badly? And, and God's answer back was, why do you think the story of his life has ended? And, and reminded me, oh, yeah, Christ is risen. Wait a minute, you know, resurrection. You know, that's, that's not the end of the story of his life. Right? 
I mean, that's the, the power of those where Christ has risen. That's not the end of the story. And, and so standing in that back hallway with Cindy praying over me, I was just reminded that's not the end of the story of her life. And there was a tremendous power and peace in that. You know, we, can, we can trust the people we love into God's hands and know that because of the resurrection, you know, when these bodies fail, that's not the end of the story of their life. That God raises them up. And not only that, as Paul says, you know, if, if you trust in that, when the time comes to face your own death, you can know that, that the same God who raised Jesus will also raise you. Um, death doesn't get the last word because of the resurrection. And we can find hope in that. And we can hold on to that. Christ has died. Christ has risen. And then the last part of that acclamation is Christ will come again. When um, the disciples met uh, face-to-face with Jesus in the resurrection in Jerusalem, uh, and Jesus tells them, you know, you wait here in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Then you're going to have power, and then you'll be able to be my witnesses. And, and, and then Jesus ascended into heaven. And while he's going, and the disciples were gazing up toward heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood by them. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now, this reminder that Christ will come again. Now, I, you know, in our society, I know a lot of times we kind of downplay that part of it. We don't tend to pay much attention to it. And that's partly because there's been a lot of weird stuff around that. Y'all know? I mean, when, when we lived in Denver, there was this congregation out on the western slope of Colorado that every year decided that they knew, had figured out the date when Jesus was coming back. And so they would all gather to wait for that in the sanctuary naked. And I'm thinking, really? You know, I mean, you know, God knows how bad that looks. He, don't, don't, he doesn't want to see that. I mean, you know, let's be honest here. You know, I mean, what are y'all, what are y'all thinking? But anyway, you know, that kind of stuff goes on. And so because of that kind of stuff, we, we, we tend to downplay that. But I want you to hear the power in, the, in that, that Christ will come again. Uh, when you go to Revelation 21, and there's this vision of the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven that John relays to us, there's a phrase in there, he says, he said, and the sea was no more. And it was a long time before I understood the power of that. Um, I grew up on the coast, and some of you vacation on the coast, and we all have these nice rosy images of being on the beach and on the coast and all that kind of stuff. Uh, uh, For the Hebrews, who were landlocked people uh, and and lived in the mountains and the deserts of the Middle East, uh, the sea was something to be afraid of. Because when you launched out into the sea in that day and age, you went out in small boats with no navigation, no weather forecast or anything, and people went out and they didn't come back. You know, the sea was a place of fear. Uh, it, it was intimidating. It was something to be afraid of. And, and so for them, the, the sea became an image of the, the chaotic and, and destructive forces uh, in the world. Um, you know, springs were signs of life, rivers were signs of life, but the sea was something to be afraid of. So, so when you read back into the Genesis story at the very beginning, and God, the Spirit of God is hovering over the water, brooding over the waters. God is calling out of the chaos creation. He speaks the word and, and orders it and creation comes into being. But, but every time in Scripture that creation ignores the Word of God, or we ignore the Word of God, the chaos rises back up. It's called sin. And all that destructive, chaotic power comes to the forefront. 
Um, if you've grown up on the coast like I did, you know, you know the reality is the, the ocean sometimes really is beautiful and lovely and, and a, lot of, you know, we, a lot of us love it a lot. But if you're there during a hurricane, it's very different. Uh, it becomes frightening uh, and, and destructive. And the, the wall of water that comes in in front of the hurricane literally can, can crush you in your home. Um, if you're ever at sea in a small boat in the midst of a storm, you know how terrifying it can be to be out there in the midst of these waves that frequently are towering over your boat uh, and, and wondering if one's going to crush you to death. Uh, if you've ever lived somewhere where there's a flood and you've watched the water take a home off its foundation, or if you've seen the, the, the fury of a tornado, or if you've watched a wildfire rage through a, a community, um, that's what the Israelites understood as the sea, that chaotic destruction. Or if you've ever had somebody you know and you loved who, who has just you know, made one bad choice after another in their life and made a train wreck and no matter what you say to them, they won't listen to you and all you can do is watch them destroy themselves. That's the sea. And in Revelation, John says, the sea was no more. Because in the return of Christ, everything is conformed to the word of God. And everything that's wrong with the world is made right. Uh, the Christian existentialist uh, Immanuel Kant said, that concept is absolutely crucial for us to have because in the world we live in, things are not the way God would have them. We know this, bad things happen. Things that we can't explain, things that don't make sense to us. People get away with stuff they shouldn't get away with. We see that all the time. And, and if God is really good, there has to be at some point a time when God sets things right. When Christ comes again and all is made as it should be. You know, when the, when the sea is no more, there's no such thing as cancer. When the, the sea is no more, Alzheimer's goes away. When the sea is no more, there's no such thing as war. When the sea is no more, our children aren't sold into slavery. And that's the promise when Christ shall come again. That, that all of those things that we struggle with and that we wrestle with will be made right. Because all of creation will be conformed to the word of God. For our brothers and sisters early in the, the life of the church, that was a lifeline to hold on to. But even now, even now, when you read the news of what's going on in the world, that's a lifeline to hold on to. That all of those things that we wrestle with and we struggle with and that cause us despair, that one day God will make all that right. There's a word of hope that comes to us in this, that this little, little phrase that we read through so quickly has this power that says, you know, even, even in the midst of, of, of everything in the life that can be so dark and overwhelming and frightening, he, he, here's the word of promise. God has not forgotten us. God knows who we are. God remembers our name. And God promises us that someday it will all be right because Christ has died and Christ is risen and Christ will come again. Let's pray.
Almighty Father, we confess to you that there are times in the midst of this world that we are overwhelmed, uh, that we do feel at sea, that we are despairing and confused, and we give you thanks that in the midst of that, we find that you have not forgotten us, that you are with us, that you remember us, you have created us, that you call us by name, and you renew us in hope. And give us the sign of that by showing us that Christ has died and Christ is risen and giving us the promise that Christ will come again. Amen.